Great to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 15, verse 25. And we'll pick up there in a little while as we continue in our uh, series that we've been in on the Holy Spirit. And specifically, rather than looking at all the things that the, the Spirit is and all the things that the Spirit does, uh, instead, we've chosen to focus this series on John 14, 15, and 16, which is at the Last Supper where Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit and uh, the necessity of the Spirit in their lives as he's preparing to ascend to the Father. Uh, and if you were here last Sunday, you know that Kelly Walters uh, taught on the Holy Spirit and discerning the Spirit's leading, uh, asking, uh, is that you, Holy Spirit? How do I know that it's the Spirit? And, and if it is, then what do I do with that? What's the appropriate way to receive from God and be led by the Spirit and, and share with others and all of that? So if you missed last week, I would actually encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. It was a fantastic teaching uh, that I actually missed because I was teaching at Soma last Sunday, uh, also teaching on the Holy Spirit, as Kelly was, and the reality that we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God uh, in the same place at the same time. And as part of that uh, teaching, I actually talked about uh, tongues and prophecy uh, in the church, and I managed to convince everyone at Soma that you're all raging charismatics. Uh, so, don't, don't disappoint me now when we, when we get over there. You have a reputation to live up to. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but in reality, it, it did uh, help highlight the fact that Soma is not only looking forward to receiving us as people and as a community, but also the things that God has been doing among us. Uh, they want to uh, learn from our experience of the Holy Spirit and make room for that in the new church that is being formed out of the two. Uh, in other words, they don't want us to uh, suppress uh, who we are or what we've experienced, but to bring that and to celebrate that as we merge together, uh, which is actually happening quite soon here in the next uh, two weeks. In fact, next Sunday, as I think Nick mentioned earlier, next Sunday is our last Sunday in this building under the name River's Edge, uh, which comes with all sorts of different uh, emotions uh, that we're processing together. Uh, but that, uh, for that Sunday, as we come together, it's not going to look like a normal Sunday. We are going to come together and uh, reflect and celebrate the chapter that we've had uh, in this season and under the name River's Edge. And we'll be asking the question together, uh, what does River's Edge mean to you? And uh, just sharing around that. And as we're sharing that and sharing stories and reflecting on uh, the ways that God's met us in this season, we're going to do that for a time, and then we're going to share a meal together. So if you come next Sunday, uh, feel free to bring something to share, and we're going to uh, have a potluck meal as well. But as I've personally been uh, processing this transition and everything that it means, I, I think I've experienced just about every emotion uh, that, that you can think of through the process. And the most helpful analogy for me has been to think of it like uh, the end of a school year, the end of one school year and the beginning of, of the next. So if you can think back uh, to what it was like to finish up third grade and prepare to go into fourth grade, uh, you know there was all sorts of mixed emotions around that. There was uh, the sadness of, oh, that third grade was so good and we got to enjoy so much together and I know my classmates so well and there's been something really rich about this season. And so there's sort of the 
the sadness and nostalgia of, of that school year coming to a close, but then there's also the questions about the upcoming school year. Well, is fourth grade really going to be as good? And, and what about the, the new teachers that we're going to have? And what about the new classmates? And, and are they going to play nice with me? Uh, and are, are they going to be like cold and distant, or are they going to be my new best friends? Uh, only time will tell. So uh, if you're feeling any of those emotions, uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, but at the same breath, we're, uh, in, the, in the same breath, we're excited to, to step into what we feel God is leading us into and uh, take the uh, adventure that's waiting for us. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to next Sunday and taking some time to uh, pause and reflect and look back and celebrate before we step into uh, the new reality of these two churches becoming one church which will officially happen on Sunday, February 11th, two weeks from this morning. Uh, as we do that, and as we process through these things, some of that processing is happening now, some of that will happen next Sunday, but we also recognize that beyond February 11th, that's going to continue to be a process uh, that we go through together as we figure out what it looks like to process the, the past and to embrace the future at the same time. And I want you to know that I'm available in that process and want to explain briefly that as the two churches become one, uh, I'll be a full-time, uh, on staff, full-time. And this is a, a breakdown of what I'll be doing or the role that I'll be playing in the months that lie ahead. Uh, roughly 10 hours a week is going to be devoted to teaching and vision. And I'll be uh, in the regular teaching rotation, part of the teaching team. Uh, Ten hours a week will be devoted to integrating the churches together, pastoring people, Sunday gatherings, general staff needs. About ten hours a week will be devoted to SOMA kids and integrating our kids in with their kids and serving in any capacity I can to uh, advance the mission in those classrooms. And then uh, roughly ten hours a week will be put toward prepping for the Philippines, which we're planning to move in October to the Philippines. So between now and then, we have a lot to do as a family and uh, a lot of uh, support raising to do and a team that we want to build around us as, as part of that. Uh, and then one other thing that I'll mention is that as part of the sort of teaching and vision aspect of what I'll be doing, uh, we are uh, all, I'm, head, I'm heading up uh, the task of starting a prayer team for the new church that will be formed out of the two, which they don't have right now, but I'm hoping it will be made up of uh, people from River's Edge and people who are currently waiting for us at SOMA who will be part of that team and uh, be trained up and equipped and regularly available uh, to pray with people and for people in the Sunday gatherings and beyond. Uh, so if that's something that catches your interest, uh, please uh, grab me at some point and uh, let me know that you're interested. And if not... I'll come find you. You know who you are. You're supposed to be on the prayer team. In the meantime, we're continuing in this series that both churches have been in on the Holy Spirit. And we'll be picking up in John chapter 15, verse 25, where Jesus says this. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's not verse 25. That is verse 18. Sorry. We're starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, 
but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this was to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me without reason. And here's where the Holy Spirit comes in, verse 25. It says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we delight in uh, gathering around you, Lord, in sitting at your feet. Uh, We are so grateful for the scriptures and this window they give us into your final uh, moments with your disciples before the cross that we feel we can almost walk into the room and sit there with them and, and hear from you and learn from you. And thank you, Lord, that you took time on that final night to point uh, their, their fragile and mourning hearts toward the reality of the Holy Spirit, that you would be with them uh, in a real, tangible, empowering way uh, in the midst of what they were losing. And so I, I pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, be with us, that we would have the same experience the disciples did of being uh, empowered and strengthened in our weakness. Uh, toward the thing that you're calling us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses that we just read, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the world that is to come. These are the final moments before he is betrayed, uh, led away, uh, tortured, crucified, and eventually resurrected. But part of the process of preparing his disciples for what lies ahead is uh, preparing them for a world in which Jesus is no longer with them in bodily form. This is what they've been used to for years leading up to this point. He says, I won't be here in bodily form. You won't be able to see me. And I'm, I'm leaving you in a world that's going to be antagonistic towards you, that's going to be set in opposition to the kingdom of God and the gospel of peace. And so in a sense, it's this uh, double whammy for the disciples. They are losing their leaders, uh, the one who uh, has, has lent them so much strength, who's been uh, the anchor in all of their storms. And uh, they're going to feel weaker and more lost than they've ever felt before. And Jesus is saying in the same breath, not only are you going to uh, lose me in, in the form that you see me now, but you're going to face persecution from the world, rejection, social pressure. Uh, You'll be thrown out of the synagogue, which in their world was the the center of community. It was the center of power. You'll you'll be thrown out to the margins of society, uh, looked down on, disrespected, or in Jesus' words, he says, you will be, uh, quote, hated without reason. 
This is the world he's preparing his disciples for. And 2,000 years later, I would argue that not much has changed. That here we are as disciples, uh, followers of Jesus, without Jesus in bodily form, uh, facing a world which will either hate us with reason, because we've been jerks, which happens sometimes, right? Or it will hate us without reason, simply because we're following after Jesus. But either way, he said, the world is, is going to hate you. Which is not good news. In fact, the only way to avoid this hatred and this opposition of the world is to join the world and either soften or abandon uh, what it is that you believe uh, about Jesus and the kingdom in the process. I've mentioned before that the American church has been shrinking for decades. Uh, not just millions, but tens of millions of people in our country have uh, walked away from church and any form of church community. And I think the easiest way to explain that is that our cultural favor ran out. That, that it swelled over the course of some decades, and then it peaked, and then it slowly began to dwindle and uh, wash out to sea. So if you take a snapshot and you only look at the last 40 years, what you see and sense is decline. People walking away, uh, churches closing and shutting down. Why? Well, well, I think that the cultural favor shifted, uh, the the cultural tide shifted, uh, the current began to move in a different direction, and any boats that weren't properly anchored in Jesus and the kingdom of God floated with that current. They shifted as the culture shifted. What's everybody else doing? What's everybody else believing? What's everybody else affirming? Okay, I'll do that. I'll go with the flow. Because we don't want to be hated by the world. Uh, we don't want to become the butt of everyone's jokes. Uh, we don't want to be looked down on. Uh, we don't want people to think that we're mean or outdated or bigoted or naive. I'm willing to be anything else, but not those things. And hence that pressure is real. And it's strong and it's powerful and it, it has the power to shape us. It's what scriptures would call the fear of man or the fear of others. Which is this recognized force in the world that acts upon our hearts, that, that opposes a genuine walk with Jesus. Uh, because as human beings, uh, I would argue that we've actually been wired by God with an inherent desire to fit in and to be accepted and to form coherent community with the people around us. So if the community is going one way, what, our hearts are just desired to want to do that thing as its uh, default setting. But in the process, in a fallen world, it can drive us to do and become and accept things that we never uh, set out to do or become or accept. Uh, we will end up affirming all sorts of things out of fear or out of a desire to fit in. Uh, being hated by the world is exhausting. And despite the fact that we think we're rational, autonomous, free-thinking individuals unswayed by the crowds, in reality, none of us are. This is why biblical community is so important. In fact, in one study, 
that was uh, trying to measure the effects of peer pressure, they put their subjects, one by one, they would put a subject in a test room, and they showed them two colors, one blue and one green. And uh, they asked the person, which one is blue? Raven, you can throw up that slide if you want. Which one is blue? The one on the left. So they start with, you're alone in the room. Which one is blue? The one on the left is blue. Everybody got it right. Then they send a stranger into the room, who you've never met, who is told to disagree with you. No, 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 no. The one on the left isn't blue. The one on the right is blue. Don't you see it? And and when they did that, uh, all of the the individuals stayed strong. No, I, I, I don't know who you are, but I disagree with you. The one on the left is the blue one. You can't talk me out of that. Then they would send a few more strangers into the room. And it was three on one. No, no, no. All three of us agree the one on the, the, the right is blue. And, and still, in the overwhelming majority of cases, the person would stand strong. No, I, I disagree with you guys. And then they would ramp it up to ten. And, and in a fascinating twist, once it hit ten, the overwhelming number of people changed their minds and said, you know what? I thought the one on the left was blue, but I'm not so sure anymore. Maybe you guys are right. They, they could actually actively be talked into believing, no, I think I got it wrong. I think the one on the left is blue. And they would, okay, that's the power of peer pressure. That's the, the power of numbers. Uh, they ended up caving to that pressure and affirming things that aren't actually true. You could say, when I'm alone, I know. I know what's true and what's false. But as soon as I get in the crowd, all of a sudden the other one felt true. Because we were all saying it, we were all thinking it together at the same time. The problem is, that's what we're up against as followers of Jesus. In the culture that we live in, in a secular culture, how do we stand firm in that culture? Where, where we feel the power to be swayed and to think differently and act differently and talk differently? How can we be witnesses for Jesus in the culture in which we find ourselves? How can we maintain integrity of uh, our character and our actions and, and our words so that they remain true and God-honoring? How can we find the strength and courage and boldness to actually share the gospel with others when those rare moments come and the door is open or the question is asked? How do we actually find the strength to say, let me tell you about Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom of God? Well, Jesus says, you need the Holy Spirit. It looks as if I'm leaving you alone and helpless in a world that hates you. It looks as if I'm leaving you as orphans in the world, he tells them. But in reality, I'm going to send you the Spirit, the Advocate, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will speak the truth and guide you into the truth, who will witness to you about who Jesus is and then empower you to witness to others. Despite all the obstacles, despite all your uncertainty, despite all your fear, says no, the Holy Spirit is going to come and, and is going to empower you 
to overcome those obstacles and speak accurately about who I am in the world. And this is why when you're reading through the scriptures and, and Jesus is sharing with his disciples, so often when he talks about mission, uh, the grand mission of God in the world, he also mentions the Holy Spirit. And, and often when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he ends up talking about mission. They're, they're actually deeply tied together and related to one another. This is just one example from the end of Luke's gospel. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's uh, in his resurrected body speaking to his disciples and he's summing up through the lens of scripture what had to happen. Hey, you guys don't understand what's going on right now. Let me explain it to you. He, he shares his own story using these words. Uh, he says, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, to every neighborhood, to every people group, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There's that word. You've seen them. Now you're going to talk about them as my witnesses. But, he says, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high or clothed with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Not only is the Holy Spirit tied to witness, but you shouldn't be witnessing to the reality of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to do that. I mean, just think for a second about the disciples. They spent three years face-to-face -face with Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew his ways. They knew his teachings. They knew his jokes. I mean, they, they, they had a real sense of, I know who this man is and what he's like. But more than that, they, they had seen things that no one else had seen. They had seen him transfigured and glorified on a mountain in the presence of God, when, when more of his true and hidden nature was unveiled before them. They'd seen him walk on water and calm storms with a word. They were there. They ate bread and fish that shouldn't have existed and took home the leftovers share with their friends and family. They saw him crucified in public till he was utterly and completely dead. They saw him taken down for burial and they saw him risen again from the dead. These people that Jesus is talking to uh, had the rare opportunity to touch resurrected hands and look into resurrected eyes. They knew the gospel. And yet, Jesus tells them to wait. In 1 John, John says it this way. He says, uh, that which was from the beginning, that's what, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, uh, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim or witness to concerning the word of life. Was there anyone on earth more qualified to witness than the disciples? Those original disciples. No. They've seen and heard and touched and experienced things that no one else has before or since. 
They had front row seats to the most earth-shattering events in the history of the world. If anyone was qualified to witness, it's them. But what does Jesus say? He says, you're not ready. Don't start yet. Wait. Stay in the city. Wait? Wait for what? What do you mean they're not ready? They, they look like the perfect witnesses. You know what a witness is in our legal system? It's someone who has seen or experienced something firsthand that they're willing to then speak about, proclaim, testify to publicly under oath in front of others. If you met that description, I, I could call you as a witness in a court case. I call to the stand the next witness. What, what qualifies them as a witness? They've seen, they've heard, they've touched, they've experienced, and now they will proclaim. That's what qualifies you as a witness. The disciples appear to be the perfect witnesses. They've seen it firsthand. Now they can talk about it. But this is what Jesus says to them. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and after that, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. But first, you need the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you aren't ready. Because it's the Spirit who will give you the strength. It's the Spirit who will give you the boldness. It's the Spirit who will give you the very words to speak in whatever context you're witnessing. In Matthew 10, Jesus says it this way. He says, Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. In other words, don't pre-plan your speech. Don't stress about it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In other words, you will feel weak and vulnerable and totally unfit for the task that I'm calling you to, but I don't want you to worry about that. It, in fact, it is a task that is impossible for you in your own strength. But I want you to recognize that and recognize your weakness and trust that as you're filled with the Spirit, He will overcome those boundaries. He will overcome those fears. He will give you the words to speak. Have you ever had somebody that you just loved and, and wanted so badly to witness to and the moment came and you're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't have the words. I don't know what they need to hear. I want them to know you so badly, but I don't know. What do I do? It says, rely on the Holy Spirit. Trust that the Spirit in you is going to give you the words to speak to point that person toward Jesus. If you have the Spirit, the Spirit can give you the boldness and the strength and the words to speak. How can we live upright and godly lives in the midst of moral relativism? 
How can we live focused and intentional lives in an age of distraction and entertainment? How can we overcome the very real fear that many of us have in sharing the gospel with others, using real words in real time in His time? We need the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, without Him, you're not ready to witness. The disciples had to wait. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, without God, He says, you can't do anything. Without me, you can do nothing. It's not just witnessing. What's true of witnessing is is true of all of life. The way we need Him in witnessing is the way we need Him in all of life. If we're to do anything with eternal value, that's going to echo into eternity in faith and hope and love for the sake of the eternal kingdom of God. Anything that we're going to do that's worthwhile, He says, without me, you can do nothing. I have a lot for you to do. More than you can now bear or receive. I have so much laid out for you. I've prepared good works in advance for you to do. But you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be with me and to be filled with my presence and to rely on me and to trust me. You need to be empowered by me in order to do the things that I'm calling you to do. As I was preparing for the teaching this morning, this line from Romans 8 just kept running through my mind. Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Oh man, I go back to that again and again. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And so often when it comes to witnessing, I don't know about you, but I feel weak. I don't always feel bold and full of courage and up to the task. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In fact, when it comes to life in general, so often I feel weak. I I feel less than prepared for the task that lies in front of me or the thing that that God is leading me through or the thing that He's calling me to do. You say, Lord, I I don't know if I can do that. I, I feel very in touch with my own weakness. I think in some ways this is a moment of weakness and vulnerability for us as a community. Wow, we're in a really vulnerable place right now over these next few weeks. I, maybe we're always vulnerable and we're always weak, but I, I'm more in tune with it right now than I usually am. Lord, I feel vulnerable. In these moments of loss or change or transition, There are moments in which we sometimes feel that we don't have the words to speak. Lord, I don't know what to say right now. I, I, I don't know what to pray right now. I just feel weak. The Bible says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. God knows that we're weak. God knows that we won't feel equipped for the task that lies before us, for the path that He's calling us to walk. He knows that. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He comes to fill and equip and empower and embolden and encourage so that we move from being a place where the circumstances feel beyond us 
and the task and the call feels beyond us to all of a sudden feeling that lifting and empowering of the Spirit that says, you know what? On my own, I can do nothing. But Lord, if this is what you're calling me to do, if this is the path you're calling me to walk, I'm trusting your Spirit is going to help me to do the thing that I could never do in my own strength. I think sometimes God wants us to be in that place where we see the path before us and say, Lord, I can't do this. It has to be you. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And we're just going to invite the Spirit to come and meet us in our weakness. Say, Lord, we see the things that you have for us. We see the path that you have us to walk. We're in touch with our own weakness. We're in touch with our own vulnerability. We're in touch with uh, how insufficient we are within ourselves. And, and so now I'm ready to receive from you. God, it, it has to be you. It has to be the Holy Spirit in you. If you think about the road that lies before you in these next few days, in these next few weeks, as, as you look out on 2024 and the road that lies ahead, you're, you're supposed to feel a little bit insufficient for that road. You're supposed to feel like, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. There's supposed to be this sense that Jesus would say, wait in the city. You're ripe. You're ripe. You can't do this alone. You won't have the strength. You won't have the words to speak. You won't know what to pray. You won't know how to walk this road. But you'll receive the Holy Spirit and everything will change. Let's pray.